Authenticity of chasing quality to serve a story, absolutely Christians need to get better at that. Authenticity of trying to chase approval, man, you're going to die in the chasm every time because there's this chasm between the audience you serve and mainstream culture. And now you're trying to say, we're just as cool as Transformers or anything else like that. And you've rejected your audience by telling them they're not cool enough for you. And you end up dying friendless in the chasm. The key is to serve an audience, to make enough noise with them, to make a quality enough product with them, that they make enough noise that crosses the chasm and mainstream culture is like, what's all this noise about? are listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is filmmaker Andrew Irwin. Andrew and his brother John are the filmmaking team known by most as the Irwin Brothers. The Alabama-born brothers grew up around college football and entertainment. Their father, a local news anchor, introduced them to the television industry at a young age. As teenagers, they began their career in sports television with ESPN as camera operators. After several years working in sports, they transitioned into directing music videos and documentaries. In 2011, they released their first feature film, October Baby, followed by Mom's Night Out in 2014 and Woodlawn in 2015. Their breakout film, I Can Only Imagine, was released in 2018. Its success led to the creation of their production company, Kingdom Story Company, and an overall deal with Lionsgate to distribute their films. Their latest film, American Underdog, is the true story of NFL quarterback Kurt Warner, who went from stocking shelves at a supermarket to becoming an NFL MVP and Hall of Famer. The film is in theaters on Christmas Day, so go check it out and take the whole family. Andrew is a thoughtful guy with a fascinating story. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Andrew Irwin, thank you so much for joining the Act One podcast today. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. We got so many mutual friends. It's good to kind of finally connect the dots and and kind of have a good conversation. Yes, I'm, I'm really excited to spend some time with you. Uh, I have uh, appreciated uh, your films uh, as, a, as a fan and and kind of watched you and, and of course your brother John as you guys have developed as as filmmakers and I think that's one of the things I want to spend some time uh, talking to you about today is uh, that that film journey uh, which has led to your most recent film that I want to make sure that we also spend time talking about because we're going to release this podcast like right you know sometime a week or so before Christmas and I want to make sure people are aware of this new film that you have coming out on Christmas Day which by the way is pretty cool. To have a film coming out on Christmas Day. This is uh, it's called American Underdog, and it's it's the Kurt Warner story. Which right. you know, I'm I'm a football fan. I, I'm a huge football fan. I'm not a I'm not a Rams fan, but you know, I <laughs> I, I, I I can appear I can appreciate greatness when I when I saw yeah. it. And, and Kurt's story is amazing. And you guys, now this is a story. Let's let's just start there. This is a story that I kind of been bandied about for years because Kurt's story is, yeah. is it's just a it's just a you know, like it's one of those things that you oftentimes um, when you uh, the announcers would say, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up. Right. Like it's like right, 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 right. Uh, even Hollywood couldn't. make. And, but here you guys right. are making a movie about his story. How did you guys end up getting the rights to tell his story? And what was the impetus for you to, you know, why did you guys decide to tell his story? You uh, it was one of those that, you know, um, I think everybody kind of 
saw it as a movie while it was happening. You know, uh, Al Michaels, like you said, in the Super Bowl uh, when Kurt was playing, uh, you know, uh, was saying that this is too good to be even a movie. And uh, so I think everybody saw it that way. And there was a lot of people that circled it for years. And so for those that don't know Kurt's story, I mean, he uh, uh, married a, a, a single mother. He was a fifth year senior out of college. Single mother had two kids, one of which was blind and, and, and disabled. And uh, he fell in love with his family and just was chasing his dream of playing professional football. And nobody, uh, he, just, he just couldn't make it. And so he uh, decided to take care of the family you know, worked in the supermarket and, and did whatever to pay the bills and played arena football on the weekends and was out of football for five years before he got his shot with the Rams. And that year when he finally got his shot, he uh, just had developed this speed and skill in arena football that nobody had ever seen before. And the greatest show on turf was born with that St. Louis Rams team, took him all the way to the Super Bowl and was the MVP of the NFL and the Super Bowl in the year that he was uh, the lowest paid player in the league. And so it was one of those that was like too good to be true. So John and I, we got our start as cameramen for uh, sports networks. And uh, while we were trying to get this film hobby off the ground, uh, we, we just operated camera for, for, you know, networks like ESPN. And so I was on the sidelines of Kurt's second Super Bowl as a cameraman. Oh, wow. And, and I remember watching him and just everything was at that point, it had become legend because it was a year, it was his second Super Bowl. So it was, uh, against Tom Brady uh, in Tom Brady's first Super Bowl. Uh, and uh, and I remember being on the sidelines of that game uh, at the end of the game. And the thing that really caught my attention wasn't necessarily what was going on in the field. It was the connection that Kurt had with this spiky-haired, uh, you know, beautiful kind of intense lady in the stands, Brenda. And that was his wife. And I always just wanted to be like, I want to know the story behind that. So fast forward 20 years later, um, it had been in development uh, and kind of stuck in turnaround at several different studios and people trying to get it made. And uh, and we had just finished, uh, you know, we had our breakout movie, which was I Can Only Imagine. And then we had just done kind of the follow up to that, which is called I Still Believe. And then COVID hit and shut everything down in our opening weekend. And uh, in the middle of all that, somebody said, you know, you ought to. I hear that the rights to Kurt and Brenda's story is they're lapsing, and uh, I think you should sit down and talk to them. And so we said, let's sit down and see what the story is. And we just we spent about three hours in Phoenix, Arizona, just talking about what they saw their story as. And John and I looked at each other, like you know, pinching ourselves, saying, "I can't believe this movie hasn't been made, and I can't believe it's falling in our laps." And then it just you know, it kind of hit this trajectory where it spun off into a much bigger film than we initially thought it was going to be. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. And you guys also have the background of, because one thing I think people don't realize, because I'm sure there's, I haven't seen the film yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it when it comes out, but I'm sure there's, there's foot, what we call football scenes, you know, and yeah. um, football is actually one of those sports that isn't the easiest to film for the, for, for our football, for people who are fans of football and fans of film, you might be more aware of this, but you guys actually have a little background with this. You, you made a, you, you've made a football film before and, yeah, we and, have, it, yeah. and, it, and it actually was heralded as being one of the better films to really portray the game of football on film but was there a was there an approach that you had you felt like you learned from woodlawn by the way we're talking about the film woodlawn 
Uh, was there a was there an approach that you felt like you learned from that film and how you guys created that film that that you uh, took into this film? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. You know, first of all, we, we wanted to make a football movie uh, that, you know, had equal stakes for people that are football fans or not. And so every time we went out on the football field in American Underdog, it was for a reason uh, with stakes at home that drove it. So it has much more of the DNA of a movie like uh, Rocky or Cinderella Man than even a football movie. But uh, the way that we portrayed the football, uh, we wanted it to be larger than life. And so, you know, what we the, the approach that we took in Woodlawn when we took to this and kind of put it on steroids is in Woodlawn, you know, we like to film football from the outside, uh, you know, from the inside out instead of the outside in. And typically sports movies, they shoot it from the TV angles, which is, you know, the, the perspective of the fans, long lens. It hides a lot of, you know, the smoke and mirrors. And it allows you to kind of get away with a lot with, you know, stunt doubles and stuff. We wanted to film on the field. And we started this with Woodlawn where we got on the field and kind of put you in the action and didn't shoot the traditional TV angles. And uh, so, you know, we started that with that movie. But when we got to Underdog, Lionsgate gave us the budget to kind of, you know, just make that huge. And um, and so it takes it to a whole nother kind of scale. Uh, both in terms of the, the devices that we're able to use, like there's these amazing RC cars now that are like remote control that we can zip in and out of the action. It's really amazing. Um, and then also just, you know, uh, in, in terms of uh, we shot uh, all the NFL stuff in this this one, large format. So it's, uh, you know, so when you get to the end, you know, the, the size of the picture, just it just looks huge. And so uh we were able to do a lot of it and then the last thing we did was we choreographed every play exactly uh down to how they hit the ground who tackled them how they got up off the ground exactly how it happened in the original telecast oh wow okay so what we're able to do is similar to argo you know how they did that with a a political thriller Mm -hmm. we cut in and out of the actual archival and what we recreated to the point where it kind of blurs the lines and it kind of creates this urgency that it's not just recreating something that happened. It's almost like it's happening now. So it's wow. cool. Um, can you explain to our listeners how you and your brother work when, 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 <clears throat> when it's described as um, uh, the, Ir- the Irwin brothers, uh, what, what is there a, you do this, he does that, or, or do you guys truly do everything together? Could you describe a little bit of, of, of your of you and your brother's you know creative process when it comes to these films yeah you know uh <laughs> we're brothers and pretty much any brothers uh directing teams are uh highly dysfunctional at best <laughs> and, <laughs> you know and so <laughs> we 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 bicker and we argue a lot um but uh we just have a policy that uh best idea wins and it's friction with respect and, you know, the best products are created with the right amount of friction. You know, uh, you have to have opposing points of view. Sometimes you get that friction between a director and an actor. Sometimes it's between uh, a producer and director. And in our case, it's between two directors. Um, and, and I think we use that to kind of give us that jolt of creativity. Um, you know, John and I each speak into every pr- part of the process. But each of us have kind of a skill set that sees a film from a different point of view. And so John is the writer for the film. He usually co-writes his movies. And then I 
I edit my own movie, so I co-edit my movies, which is kind of the final rewrite of the whole film. And so we each touch both ends of the the, the process. Uh, but in the middle, there's this blur of John sees things much more visually, much more cinematically. Uh, and I see things more intimate and performance-based and personal. So uh, I'm, I'm usually the voice to the actors and to the dramatic side of things. And John's usually the voice to the crew and the visual side of things. We both speak into those parts of the process, but each of us kind of is the, the speaking head in those kind of venues. And then there's others we kind of divide and conquer, whether it's, you know, production design or kind of the visual look. Um, you know, this is our first DGA film. So the director's guild for the, the union. And so for the DGA, we had to, they have to give a special approval for co-director status for each film. And so we had to go b- before the council and, and sit down with them and kind of be vetted on every part of our process and how we do our job. And uh, I guess they signed off that it was not too dysfunctional. So it worked. <laughs> that must have been an interesting experience. You had to you had to basically um, show your process a little bit to them. Is that pretty much what it was? Yeah, it was it was intense. I mean, it was uh, I mean, it was a it was a, a council of about 12 directors and you go before them. Usually you do it in person. Uh, from what I understand, but uh, because of COVID, we had to do it by Zoom. But the people vetting us on the call were other people that had, had co-directed before. So uh, Seth Rogen was one of the main people that, that vetted us. Um, Jason Reitman that just did Ghostbusters, he was on there. Uh, and, and, you know, six or seven others. And then a bunch of people that I didn't see who was on there. But they went through and every step they were like, how do you do this? How do you do that? And then you kind of walk yourself through it. And, you know, being filmmakers that are kind of self-taught um you know by reading a lot of books and and imitating a lot of people uh that kind of were outsiders to the industry that have kind of fought our way in you know it it was both terrifying and validating at the same time (laughs) i'm sure to be on that call and then being like you know would you do this how would you and there was like these trick questions and then at the end of it we had to wait their decision and they went and conferred and decided that we weren't idiots so uh (laughs) it, it, it worked out it worked out that is that's a fascinating process. That's really interesting. You you went before the tribunal and you passed. Yeah, it was it was very much kind of like uh, you know, you know, Templar Knights kind of, you know, <laughs> uh some sort of kind of Mason Grand Grand Poobah type thing. I the I Star I Chamber. You were, you're, exactly. you, were before, you were before the Star Chamber. <laughs> yeah, it was like the, it was the Jedi Council. I kept waiting for them to pan the camera around and see Master Yoda sit there, but it was <laughs> you know, it was awesome. That's great. So you talk, you touched a little bit on you, your your background. How do two brothers decide to make films together? I'm, I am curious about that. Well, you know, we've talked to a lot of people who one will one will write, one will direct, one one will one will produce. Right. Or, you know, um, how did you and John decide we're going to do this? To we're going to actually do this together. Was it was it out of necessity or was it? Um, tell us a little bit about that. I, I think uh, uh, you know a uh, a lot of us that have gravitated towards that um you know I, I i don't know i think it has a lot to do with just your upbringing and experience you know john and i started as kids and so you know being self-taught we had to do every job you know in whatever short film or documentary or music video that we were doing and so we just learned to divide and conquer so we kind of wore every hat to start with and then uh you know we we're both um we both kind of have uh, more alpha tendencies, 
uh, and and typically want to be in charge. Uh, but you know, we found that there was just a, a strength when we one of us kind of, you know, I guess uh, took a step back in different you know, expertises and say, okay, these are things that you do really well. I'm going to defer to you. And these are things I do well. You're going to defer to me. And in that uh, friction with respect, um, we found that we made each other stronger and we make better films that way. So, uh, you know, John and I, I don't, I don't know that we're locked into always having to direct together for life. You know, we're always going to be involved in each other's projects as partners, but, um, but up to this point, there was a, it was just out of necessity that, it was kind of we were outsiders, kind of chip on our shoulder, us against the world, and you kind of unite with family, and family just has a shorthand, and so we can be on set, and I know exactly what John's thinking, and I'm like, oh, you're doing that, and then, I, okay, do that, and then he's like, and then he, he, you know, it's just this shorthand that you have as as brothers, um, where you find kind of magic in a bottle, and so we each approach it very differently, but I think it makes a, pro- a better product when we kind of unite those points of view. Yeah. It's such a, you know, I'm using this theologically incorrect, but it's uh, when I say this word, but it is such a miracle when films get made. Um, Films are, uh, you know, for for those who haven't made a film, it's hard to make films. And it's, you, it's insanely hard. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys have, you guys have been in the grind. Um, Right. And you made this leap um, uh, with, I can only imagine um, where, um, suddenly people were coming to you going, Hey, you know, so I wonder if you could, we could talk just a little bit about that when you guys, well, let's start, let's start back a little bit with, I can only imagine of the impetus for that. When did you guys decide to take this, um, to, to base a film off of, uh, a song? When, when did you get involved in the process and how did that start? Well, you know, for us, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a filmmaker's early career is about imitation and you're imitating different things. You haven't really found your voice. So we had tried on a lot of different hats, you know, um, coming out of music videos. We did, you know, uh, October Baby and then we did Mom's Night Out and it, it, films that I'm proud of. But they were very much kind of just trying to find our voice. And when we did Woodlawn, Woodlawn was where we really found our voice. And our voice is uh, in, you know, stories of redemption uh, underdog stories, uh, that are true life stories. That's, you know, real, real true life redemption stories is kind of, you know, our song to sing. And, uh, you know, Woodlawn was our first A plus cinema score. And, uh, and, you know, meaning that the audience really connected with it. Um, and A pluses are rare. There's only a couple of them a year. And, um, and so we, we did that, but financially Woodlawn was not a success. You know, uh, we had grown our budgets too fast. Uh, we had had a little, we, we, I guess we were a little too cocky. Uh, and it was a humbling experience because it didn't perform the way that we had hoped. Um, and in that humbling process, you know, we really were at that point of, it's a very fragile point that a filmmaker gets to where, you know, either you're going to push through or you're going to fold up shop and go home and just do something else. And we were at that point where it was, it could have gone either way. Um, and in that soul searching, we were figuring out what story was next. Well, I had gotten to be friends uh, with Bart Miller that the, I can only imagine is based on. Uh, and uh, and he had come up to me after screening one of our films and said, I don't know if you know this, but 
There's a producer named Cindy Bond, and she has optioned my story. They've been developing it for the past five years as a movie. I wonder if you would uh, consider directing it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. They sent us a script this morning. And I just, I read the script, and I was just like, ah, it's just not, I don't know if there's a story there yet. And uh, I was doing an interview uh, at the end of the Woodlawn Experience, and the host asked me off the air, what are you guys looking at next? And I said, I don't know, if, you know, we're trying to figure it out, but maybe might do something around uh, Bart Miller and the song I can only imagine. And he said, oh my gosh, I was at the Ryman that night when Amy Grant pulled him up on stage and gave him his song back. He said, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in music. And it wasn't in the script. And I called Bart, I'm like, did this happen? He's like, oh yeah, bro, it was the most magic night of my life. I forgot to tell you guys that. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like lead off of that, bro. <laughs> So, <laughs> it was the most magical like, night of life. Forgot to tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to say, which is a very Bart thing to do. So I called up Amy Grant because we'd done videos for Amy Grant, and and I said, Amy, did this happen? She said yes. And I said, can we use it in a movie? She said, it, does it help Bart? I'm like, it makes a better movie. She's like, then yes, you can use it. So at that point, we're like, okay, we don't just have a little so- song, a story about a song. We have a full, complete movie, hmm. and. uh it's a redemption story. And John did a page one rewrite of the script, starting with the moment that we end the film with when he, he looks up and the, the whole stands are empty and he sees his father in the stands. That was where we started. And we worked our way back from that uh, to kind of finish the script. But that was exactly where John was like, this is a story about a father and a son. And, um, and so when we made it, we had conflicts with the studio that was developing it. So we ended up, you know, <laughs> there was a, a, a meeting where they, you know, they just said uh, there was only 17,000 fans on the planet that would that would be excited for the film. And and uh, so we said, you know what, we really believe in our movie. We, you know, we're going to go ahead and buy the rights and take it on ourselves as an independent film. And again, that razor edge between success and failure, we, that could have been insanely crazy. We stepped away from the studio uh didn't have a star didn't cast dennis quaid until we were three weeks into filming and uh we were we were a week away from having to fish or cut bait on just finding someone and then dennis said i love the movie let's do it um and uh and then when it came out opening weekend you know it was predicted to do about four million opening weekend which would have been a huge failure for us and uh and then it came out and it did 17.1 opening weekend and gave us our second a plus cinema score and then held 14 million the next weekend and did 86 million uh, over the run of the film, little $7 million film. And then that just smashed the doors wide open and it, it was a game changer, but the razor edge between success and failure there, we, we could have easily just as easily died, you know, folded up shop and gone home. That is um, that's a great, it's <laughs> a great point that, so much of success comes as, as bred from failure. Um, yes. And, and um, there's a fearlessness that, that you have to, you have to have. And uh, that's very admirable on you guys part. I, I talking about Dennis Quaid, that role, I mean, the, that role in that film, it, 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 it kind of required, like, I can't imagine who would have, who could have been, other than him, because that role required an actor of his gravitas. And yeah. um, what was it like? I mean, because I know you'd work with um, other great actors, but that that must have been a um, 
something a little bit different casting him in that world and working with him in that in that in that film yeah it, it was uh, and you know and dennis dennis uh and i've become really dear friends at this point i mean he's in american underdog as, as well but you know on that one um it was that role was originally written for mel gibson and uh we were courting Mel and, and traveling with him at, at, at points, helping him promote Hacksaw Ridge to the faith audience. And then at the last minute, Mel, Mel when we made the offer, decided that he was going to go do uh, Professor and Madman, and, which is a passion project for him. And when he pulled his name out of the consideration, we were like, oh, we don't, we don't really have a plan B. Um, and, uh, and so we started looking at all the people that were suggested. And I just really had a hunch about Dennis Quaid. And we got a lot of pushback at first because Dennis had always played, you know, the good guy that gets a little bit better. You know, right. he was always the this, this squeaky clean, you know, Boy Scout, ideal American. Yeah. And to play somebody that's a child abuser, that is really a rough character, that is not an attractive character, that really lets his kind of flaws hang out. Uh, you know, there was concern of whether the audience would accept that. But I just really felt like Dennis was at a place in his life where if he embraced his age and embraced his struggle, that there was something special to tap into that, you know, the audience had not seen before. So he came in and we only had him for about eight days to film with him. And he came in really dialed in and we, you know, had our first day on set, which is kind of like an awkward first date. And, and I just, you know, you know, I, I pulled him aside after one of the scenes. He said, do you have any notes? And I said, well, you know, I, I love everything you're doing, but could you just give me a little bit less? I think the best kind of emotion is not trying, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not emotion. It's suppressed emotion. It's not crying. It's, it's trying not to cry. And that's where the most powerful emotion comes from in a performance, especially with a man is let it just be forced out of you. And he said, oh, good. I, I, I like being reined in because I, I like to go big at first. And I said, well, we have a policy of best idea wins, Dennis. And he said, well, I like strong direction. I'm like, well, we're going great. Good. And I said, well, this is what I want. And and so he came in for that breakfast scene and he played it like a, a shook up bottle of soda pop where he was trying not to be this abuser, but he was about to explode. Mm. And that scene, he just took it to another level that I, I'd never seen anything like that out of Dennis before. And I was I was enthralled that hey we've got great and good in this scene and then we flipped the camera around to do the close up work for John Michael Finley uh, who played Bart and John Michael was a first time film actor and he responded to Dennis and he took his level up and I'm like oh my gosh we got great and great in this scene so that was one of those things that again you don't know if it's going to work out it could have easily been a failure but Dennis was meant for that role and I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. And uh, he just he did he tapped into something extremely special. He did. <clears throat> he really did. That I, I thought I thought he was the um, was just exceptional. I've always been a Dennis Quaid fan, but you're right. It's you know he's Dennis Quaid. You know he's he's that guy. You know yeah. he's always the yeah. Um, but uh, but that was something um, that was something different in a in a really um, beautiful way. Directing actors. Well, actually, before we get to directing them, let's talk about casting them. Um, what is your process? Cause you, you guys have had some, some, some really good casts. You, you, you guys have, have worked with some really talented actors in your films. Um, yeah. what is your casting process? Are you looking for, do you have someone in your mind just locked in 
and like a bulldog, you're just driving towards that one person? Or do you, or are you able to kind of consider? And if so, what are you looking for? I know every film and every role is different, but do you have some sort of process that you and John have in terms of, of casting? Yeah. I mean, you always write a script and what John's writing the script, I'm the first audience. So I'm always critiquing the script and editing it with him. And so, um, you always kind of get locked in your head exactly who you see in your head. Uh, and, you know, typically you're set up for disappointment because you're, you know, it just very rarely uh, do you get your first pick. And then you have to kind of wrap your head around, okay, what's available to me and, and how do I, and then you end up casting your movie. And then all of a sudden you're like, I imagine a movie without that person. So like in the case of, I can only imagine, I can't imagine doing that film without Dennis Quaid. Like he was the movie. And uh, so you just have to fight for those things. So it's a lot of times it's relationship. It's a large portion of luck or or providence. Uh, And then it's just about working towards the individual. So I, I usually do a list of 30 or 40 deep per role working with my casting director. Um, of people I could see, we could see in these parts. And we, we go through that roster and I do, you know, I, and then I, I do a headshot sheet where I start pairing people together as far as how they would, the chemistry would go. Yeah. Cause it's not just about getting great actors in your film. It's about having a really well-developed cast mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you work relationships. So in the case of, I still believe we did that one. Um, KJ Apple, when he came on board from Riverdale, incredible young actor i love kj but the first thing we asked is we've got to have great chemistry here and uh who would who, who is the one actress you worked with you had the best chemistry and he said Britt robertson hands down i did a dog's purpose with her it was my first film when i moved to the u.s from new zealand and she's amazing and i'm like well can you reach out to her so he reached out to her and she didn't respond to his text and he's like well i guess she didn't like me as much as i liked her <laughs> and and so we were in the middle of Kim reads with some other actresses that were really good. Uh, but, uh, you know, chemistry reads, uh, and, and we just still weren't feeling it. And we said, he said, you know, let me reach out to her again. So he reached out to Brit on Instagram. She saw his message said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't see your, I changed my phone number and I can't believe I, you know, I didn't see your text and I would love to do this movie. And so she signed on and then all of a sudden we're off to the races. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, other people like Gary Sinise, Gary Sinise has been a longtime mentor for me and I'd always wanted to work with him. And, you know, we talked about where he was at in his career and he had taken some time off to help his family. And, and he said, and I said, well, where are you at? And he said, I want to take a movie that reminds me I'm good at what I do. And I said, well, I'd love to work with you. He said, well, write me something. So we wrote the role of the father for him in that movie, uh, which was a treat. And then, um, you know, when we got to underdog, sometimes you do land your first pick. And that's very, very, very rare. But in the case of underdog, when we started talking, Zachary Levi from Shazam was our number one pick. Uh, that was the one we wanted. But we had the same agent at UTA, and I knew his schedule. And I knew he was about to shoot Shazam 2 and Harold the Purple Crayon. And he had two other films in development at Lionsgate. and so I did. I, I knew there was no chance. So we we went on to start talking to other people. But uh, Zach and I knew each other from the past, and I talked to him on the phone, and I just said, 
you know, we were talking about something completely different. We were FaceTiming. And he said, what's this Kurt Warner movie I keep hearing my name tossed around on? And I said, well, Zach, I wasn't even going to mention it to you because you're not available. He's like, well, send me the script. Let me see what I think. So I sent him the script. And he texted me back at midnight. He said, I'm in tears. I love this script. He's like, let's go make a football movie. We'll work it out. And so I called up my brother. And I was like, I just landed Zachary Levi. And I, I don't know how I did that. But he's on board. And so instantly... <laughs> We went back to the other actors that we had that were in our fold. So I, Dennis Quaid looks a lot like Vermeil has a lot of his tendencies. Yes. And so I reached out to Dennis and I put together a highlight reel of Dick Vermeil. And I just said, Dennis, I'll let you play anybody you want. I'll let you play the mom in this film if you want. <laughs> but I said, you know, I think it's really special when an icon plays an icon. And I sent it to him. He watched the highlight reel. He's like, I'm your Vermeil. I'm in. And then, uh, and then we were like, now we've got to really ground the cast with some like uh, pedigree. And so we started talking down the, the, the you know, the, uh, Brenda's a very complicated uh, character. She's feisty, but she's warm. Uh, she's kind of uh, punk, but she's also feminine. You know, she's a Marine, but she's also a mom. So there's a lot of contradiction in her. And you had to like her and also respect her at the same time. And so we reached out to Anna Paquin. And she's an Oscar winner. She won an Oscar at age nine and, and just said, you know, and she read the script and she said, I love this. I've never done anything about faith before, you know, and I'm, you know, I, do you think that's a, you know, a problem for me playing this role? And I said, no, Anna, as long as you can fight to understand what Brenda's faith meant to her, I'm good. Who wouldn't want an Oscar winner? And she signed on and she did her homework and she came in dialed in. So all of a sudden everything, all the pieces assembled and then we got, great character actors to finish out the cast and all of a sudden it assembles you're like this isn't just a, a, a you know one actor in a good movie it's a really great ensemble cast and that's just something you have to kind of it's like playing tetris just making all the pieces fit until you're like oh that's exactly what it needs to be and you just work it that sounds yeah uh, that sounds really exciting mean, i'm really excited to see that cast yeah I, I, honest to goodness the Dennis Quaid Dick Vermeil, that was like a no brainer. As soon as you see Dennis Quaid, I'm like, oh, that's like a no brainer. That's amazing. Um, yeah. The uh, rehearsal, how much rehearsal do you guys do? Like when you have these guys that are so busy, as Zachary Levi and right. and now uh, Anna Paquin and Dennis Quaid, they're always working on other stuff. And um, how do you do a lot of rehearsal? Do you do more like, I, I heard that, uh, who was it? Mel Gibson just like meets with his actors you just like talks with them before um what is what are your what is your process and is it is it different every film yeah you know every filmmaker has kind of their style and it usually comes out of just what their experience was getting into the industry what they're coming from so like theater guys really do a lot of rehearsal so if you're a theater person yeah they rehearse the heck out of it. if you're in a you know aaron sorkin film you know you're gonna you know just go over it over and over and over it um you know, for me, uh, we work with the actors on whatever skill they need for the film. So in this case, Zachary Levi had to work with the quarterbacks coach and get, you know, all the dynamics of being an NFL quarterback down. So he had to work really hard on that um, and uh, and making sure that we do that on on. I still believe KJ Apple. We work with him extensively on uh, him as a singer um, because he was a guitar player, but singing was new to him. And so. Those things we work extensively on. As far as rehearsing the material, we're very light on rehearsal. You know, I think, you know, in particular, um, 
John and I come out of live TV and that was our thing. And so there's a frenetic energy when you have to kind of stick the landing in the moment and discover something. There's just, there's this urgency and this kinetic energy that doesn't feel super planned. It feels like found. And I really like that. And so uh, I find that if we over rehearse it, um, that it gets stale. And uh, so what we do is with our leads, you know, we'll spend time with them doing some read throughs and that type thing, and then allow them to speak into the script of saying, ah, they didn't feel like my character and that type of stuff. And we kind of, what we call tailoring the suit. But as far as the really big stuff, we really save it for the day and try to discover that in the moment. Um, just, you know, and I, I'm, I'm kind of a four take guy. I feel like first two takes, I'm knocking rust off third take will live in the movie fourth take will be really, really great. And then after that, you're wasting energy. And so, um, you know, uh, that's more in the Clint Eastwood kind of camp. I think he's only a two take guy, but, <laughs> but, you know, each, you know, each, uh, each director finds their own rhythm, but that's our rhythm. It, it, when you're on set, um, is there leeway to improvise? You, do you like for the actors to kind of play around? You, you get, you give them space for that. Are you guys like, Nope, this was the script. Say the words I wrote. No, we, we tease my brother all the time. We're like, it's just words. And then he's like, I'm right here in the room. <laughs> and we're like, so, uh, you know, I feel like once you have a really great script, uh, and then if you cast that film correctly as a director, then that's 90% of the directing job. And the rest of the time, my job is to help the actors get to a place where they feel safe and not self-conscious. Uh, and when they feel safe, then they'll risk and they'll be vulnerable and vulnerability is the key to really great acting. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we are all about like get what's on the page once or twice, but then let's play, let's discover. And John is a good sport with that as a writer of finding things. So some of the best moments in the film are discovered. Like for instance, there's this moment, you know, when we cast, Dennis Quaid as, as Vermeil. I talked to the real Dick Vermeil on the phone, and uh, and I said, you know, what did you see in him? And he said, well, I was, you know, out of football for 15 years as an announcer because I'd burn out, and I saw the same thing in Kurt. And he said, but I remember pulling him aside in the hallway one day and saying, son, there's something really special about you. I can't wait to find out what it is. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's great. Can I use that? He's like, yeah. So I called John. I was like, we need to add this line, and we just throw it in. And so we were all about this discovery, best idea wins. So everybody has their fingerprints on it. Um, you know, uh, you know, Anna pushed really hard for some things that were like, hey, I've read this, Brenda, this is a very Brenda moment. Uh, or, you know, Kurt and Brenda were on set a large portion of the film and they'd be over by the monitors and they would be feeding us little things that were just nice signatures that only they would know. And so, yeah, everybody gets their fingerprints on our scripts. You guys have made a lot of true stories. Like you, 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 you've made a lot yeah. of story. You made a, your films deal with uh, characters who either lived or are currently living. And right. um, why is there something about true stories that resonates with you differently? Um, do you, I'm, I'm curious uh, why you guys have made so many true story films. Yeah. Um, you know, again, each filmmaker finds their song to sing and they sing it over and over again. So 
you know, you know, for Spielberg, it's the wonder of childhood and the idea of trying to bring the nuclear family back together. You know, it's all about exploring the split up of his parents. You know, in his story, his parents got divorced and they got back together later in life. And that's really the crux of the majority of his stories, whether it's E.T. or, you know, whatever. It's it's about trying to bring the family together. Um, you know, and so I think there's, you know, each filmmaker has something that they want to try to explore. Um, you know, for us, because we were documentary filmmakers before features, uh, we've always just felt like there's something power in the truth. Uh uh, something powerful in the truth. It's it's just, uh, you know, I think as a uh, specifically as a person of faith, that we want uh, our faith to read as real and lived in, and not propaganda. Uh, somebody's real life experience gives us the platform to do that in a way that can be overt without feeling preachy. And uh, with each story, it it just. And there's something about when it's invented, you know, it, it, and, and, you know, some sort of well, well-known IP might be a different scenario, but as far as fictional versus fact, um, there's just something about fact that allows us to, you know, to just be who we are and just say, Hey, this is what they really went through. This is their real life experience. Their faith was important to them. This is how it made a difference and just put it out there in a way that feels very subjective and uh that allows for conversation pieces to be had and, and we've done fiction i mean our first two films were fiction uh but we found that when we stepped into something that was real with woodlawn we're like oh this feels comfortable this is us and uh my job is to study the real life people do, do you feel as though when it comes to films that that deal with issues of faith um do you feel like almost not having a suspension of belief um, helps in the sense that um, to, to your point, like if it's true, like there's a sense that the audience can come into this and go, um, there is a, there is a baseline of truth here that I know now they might play around with someone's hair or, you know, circumstances may move around, but um, particularly in this genre, um, do you feel uh, do you feel as though that's a that's like an added benefit for you as a filmmaker with the audience? Yeah, I mean, I think I think so because our, our our goal with our films, other films of faith, are geared more towards the choir. Our, our films uh, uh, are kind of with an outward focus to allow the choir to be heard by people outside the church walls, and uh, and so with that outward focus, we're looking for entry points for somebody that's not a faith or has walked away from faith to start a conversation. And so, you know, if you go straight to, you know, doctrine and dogma, a lot of times it, a wall instantly goes up with a person that, uh, that really ends that conversation. But, uh, but kind of similar to the apostle Paul in the Bible that he was talking to all these philosophers and scholars uh, in Greece. And he, he talked to him uh, on Mars Hill and was trying to, use their language to explain, you know, the truth of the gospel. Um, you know, what we're looking for is an entry point. And right now, the biggest entry point for anybody in a secular society, you know, living today is your experience, my truth. And so it, it doesn't have a debate when it's like, this is what this person went through. This is their truth. This is what they found. And that allows us to plant the seed of the gospel 
and start conversations. And, you know, so like with Imagine, you know, when I got, when we got done with that movie, we were pitched a movie from another big studio to direct. We had to turn it down because of our deal with Lionsgate. Um, but on the way back to the elevator, uh, the executive that was walking us there was about my age and he's a guy. And we get to, got the elevator. I turned around to say goodbye. And I looked back and he had crocodile tears in his eyes. And he said, I don't typically watch your kind of movies. He said, but I had to to prepare for this meeting today. And he said, I can't get away from the fact that Dennis Quaid's character in that movie was my dad. And I can't stop thinking about it. And for some reason, I have not been able to stop crying. Hmm. And I'm like, that's somebody that you get to that point where you earn the right to be heard. You make somebody, you, you engage with them. It's called emotional jamming. If I can jam a wedge between your heart and your head and make you feel something for a character, then it will stick with you long-term and reverse engineer to your head and change how you think. So the idea is by doing true stories, those defenses don't go up nearly as fast, you know, and, and other filmmakers have done that well for their perspective. Like I remember when I watched the imitation game, when I watched that film, the filmmaker and the writer wrote it to really try to help people understand a community that he was a part of that thought differently than I did. But when I watched it, I, it, it stuck with me emotionally. I couldn't shake it uh, because it was a true story. And it got to the point that he didn't turn off the moment where the movie preached till he'd earned that right. And as Christians, we can either, you know, criticize people that, 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 that do that, that may have a different worldview, or we can say, Oh, that's a powerful tool. And how do we engage thought to try to just plant the idea of simple redemption and forgiveness? And then the, the answer to that obviously is Christianity and relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's, that's just offered by wetting that appetite for wanting redemption. And that's true stories. You know, I, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but it's a powerful tool to do it. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I agree with you. And I think that for, um, uh, as an audience member, you find yourself, um, it's one thing to see yourself in, it's one thing to see yourself in a character right. uh, and to, and to empathize, but it's nothing to see yourself in another human being, right. like someone exactly. who actually, someone who actually lived. And, that, and I think that was the point that maybe even the power of that, that executive was that it wasn't just a character that you created. It was, it was Bart's actual father, um, exactly. his, his transformation. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, from your perspective, um, the the conversation in that that Christians have about Christian film. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a bit of a schism, if you will. There's people who absolutely hate them and abhor them and think that they've ghettoized everything, and then there's people who absolutely think that that's all you should watch. You should completely remove yourself from mainstream, and you should only watch you know, the cross and the switchblade over and over again, um, <laughs> which I'm, yeah. I'm sure some of, some of our audience know that reference. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, for you, you're, you're in this space. And by the way, I want to start this question out by saying um, I, I'm a fan of you and your brother's work. I have to admit, you guys have right. really developed as filmmakers. It's been really impressive to see you guys, you're starting off um, uh, and, and to progress to where you are now. Um I see you growing as filmmakers. I see you growing as storytellers. Uh, and it's been really impressive. And I just want to tell you congratulations and bravo on on, 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 on everything you guys have been able to uh, achieve and accomplish so far. 
And, and, and having said that, you, you even touched on it a little bit that your films tend to your ten your films tend to address maybe a different slant of that audience within that same faith-based Christian film kind of subcategory, whatever we want to call it for marketing purposes, but that's where we are, right? Um, right. So for you, I'd love to know your thoughts on this space because I know you have lots of friends. You've worked in this space. You have lots of friends in this space. Um, what do you say to those two groups? Uh, the group that says you shouldn't be a part of any kind of mainstream film. You should only make Christian content. Um, and what do you say then to the other group, which says um, Christian film is, 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 is abhorrent and you should have nothing to do with, with faith-based films. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I would hope that to just be part of a tool to cause a conversation to happen between those two groups. Um, you know, I, I think film is a very subjective thing. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to criticize, uh, because it, it, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a large part of Christian, uh, critics that are just ashamed of Christians. And I can't do anything about that. You know, if that triggers something new that makes you feel like the Christian ghetto, uh, then I, I can't do anything about that. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it, you know, you have a bigger issue than a film, but as far as the quality goes, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, John and I always have said that quality is something we always chase. It's not something we ever catch. And so with each film, we just try to get a little bit better, you know, and to chase quality a little bit more. And I think that's the correct perspective. I think the ones that are doomed to failure are the ones that come out and be like, finally, we're the first, you know, quality Christian film. And I'll be like, oh, you just stepped in the trap because, you know, to the outside world, outside the church, they don't care. That's they right. don't care. Right. They don't care about the labels. They're just like, is it a good movie? Is it worth watching? What's the buzz about? You know, it's like, you know, uh, and, and when that fear of missing out kicks in, like I, there's a reason why I, Crazy Rich Asians was not on my radar. You know, even though one of my buddies is in it, I, I, it wasn't on my radar, wasn't even paying attention until all of a sudden, you know, there's all this buzz from a community that celebrated their art form. And by Monday, you know, afternoon, I'm sitting in the theater watching Crazy Rich Asians, being like, what's all the hype about? You know, and so I think there's a larger portion of people that they, they're, their real issue is just with being ashamed of Christians. But the quality side, I'll say that I have a different perspective because I did come up with a group of people and, and we're maybe second generation, but there was a group of people, whether it's the Kendrick brothers with fireproof or, you know, or Devon Franklin, that's been like a big brother to us, uh, you know, or, you know, obviously Mel Gibson was the one that started the whole trend, um, uh, you know, in this recent iteration of, of faith uh, films, um, you know, so I, I, I think that it took tremendous courage for two pastors in, you know, in Georgia to step into the game saying, we want to be involved in this and we're willing to make up for 40 years of lost ground where there was a lot of Christians that said movie theaters are bad and we're not going to do this. And so, whereas we were represented incredibly well in the fifties, you know, and up till the sixties, you know, with movies like Ben Hur and the robe and, you know, the 10 commandments. I mean, I was like, that was stable Hollywood. It was really controlled by Catholics. And then at some point, Christians were like, no, movies are bad. And they stopped. And so we lost our seat at the table. 
So for two men to step into the game and say, you know, we're going to reclaim lost ground and we're going to learn what we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. In the early days, we all struggled. But I think we have fought to try to learn in triple speed, uh, you know, how to how to make an impact. And I think uh, any of us that are having any kind of success at this point, oh, a tremendous debt of gratitude towards leaders like that, that were willing to take a chance. And so I think with any emerging industry, you know, there's a lot of criticism that comes up front. There's a lot of critics. Um, you know, Christian music took the same flack for years. And so um, I'm excited to be a part of the, maybe blazing the trail that then there's hopefully filmmakers that come behind me that are going to take it farther and do bigger things. Um, and so I, I see it. I see the idea of a trailblazer as being incredibly romantic. And this idea that, you know, I'll see, this is my soapbox. So you get me on it for a little while. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, go for I'll it. Go for it. Yeah, Hop on. Yeah. I'll say that. I'll say that. The other thing is a lot of people are chasing approval rather than telling a story. And I think where we do owe it to the audience to have quality is chase quality in, in the storytelling to make it as good as your story deserves and serve the story. Serve your fans, the people that are buying the tickets. Uh, don't chase approval. And so uh, I was <laughs> I was at um, uh, Sundance, uh, you know, several years ago, and I just was fly on the wall, just decided to kind of step in. And um, and there's this group of Christian filmmakers that that go and they kind of have these, you know, groups that go and screen films and you know, they do a lot of cool things. But I just showed up just stepping in, not really announcing who I was just before Imagine to come out. Imagine what was just finished. And uh, the moderator knew I was there, but nobody else did. And, and somebody asked a question about this exact question about the Christian ghetto. And they just went around the rooms and just it just eviscerated. And it got to this one professor at a well-known university that I won't mention. Uh, and he just was like, what we need is authenticity. We need to chase authenticity. And, you know, Christians, da, 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 da. And I don't disagree with that. But it gets to me and they're like, hey, we've got a special guest in the room, uh, the director of Woodlawn, Andy Irwin. <laughs> and that that professor shrunk in his seat because he knew that we had a partnership with the, his university. And uh, and and I was like, well, I just think that, you know, we're trying to connect with an audience and start a conversation. And I think it's tremendously, you know, does the quality need to continue to go up? Yes. But is it going up and is it going? Yeah. And I think the, the future is bright because we're connecting with an audience. Well, afterwards, he pulls me to the side of this professor and he said, do you what do you think about what I said? You know, authenticity. And I said, well, man, um, I agree with you as long as we can agree on what authenticity is. And I said, authenticity of chasing quality to serve a story. Absolutely. Christians need to get better at that. Authenticity of trying to chase approval. Man, you're going to die in the chasm every time because there's this chasm between the audience you serve and mainstream culture. And now you're trying to say we're just as cool as Transformers or anything else like that, and you've rejected your audience by telling them they're not cool enough for you, and you end up dying, you know, friendless in the chasm. The key is to serve an audience, to make enough noise with them, to make a quality enough product with them, that they make enough noise that crosses the chasm, and mainstream cultures does exactly what I did with Crazy Rich Asians, 
It's like, what's all this noise about? And that's where a movie like Imagine comes out, does the numbers it does opening weekend. And we saw that our numbers were off the charts in Burbank. And nobody goes and sees a faith film in Burbank. I mean, it's just, it's an industry <laughs> town. And so we sent somebody to spy. And when they went in, there was about like 50 suits in this one audience with notepads taking notes from the studio saying, why does this work? You know, the fear of missing out. And so that's, wow. Wow. that's the key. And I think as long as you're chasing quality and you never catch it, then we're in good shape. That's really good. I, I, um, there's a lot of, a lot of good insight in that. I look, there's a, there, there are so many people I, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it too. There's a lot of people by the way, in the Christian, um, uh, film business also too. They're just jealous. Yeah. There's also jealousy yeah. involved here and, and you don't have to say it, but I'll say it. They're jealous of you guys. They're jealous of the Kendrick brothers. They're jealous of other people. And it comes out with this almost like puritanical view of, of, uh, of, of, of quality. Look, look, I can say point blank if I like a film or not, there's certain films, sure. like it's just not my cup of tea, right? I'm not, fine. I don't really like, right. But, but to, but to flat out accuse people of things, like we have to be careful as Christians to not fall in the same trap that non-Christians fall into. Right. And, and so I would, I would, uh, I do believe that in the end, you have to be good. You just have to be good. And yeah who's judging the good. And you said it perfectly. Well, the audience, if you put the, right. you put it out there and the audience is going to watch it and the audience is going to let you know. And if there is an audience coming to your films, that's telling you that there is, there is an audience being served. And, yeah. um, and, and you, we have to have that conversation who's yeah. being served. Like now I could argue that I think that there, that the audience could learn um, a thing or two, but, 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 but you know what? This is what happens when Scorsese and Ridley Scott criticize the MCU, like the Marvel films, right? Yeah. Like they get jumped on, but there's actually very little difference to the conversation. Yeah. I think, I think I, I can say to you that um, there are always going to be critics um, yeah. who are going to be critical of a particular space that a Christian is involved in. The problem yeah. comes is when it's other Christians and we don't, yeah we don't offer each other the same grace of God that God offers us. Um, yep. Like I, I, you know, I will probably be criticized for having you on the podcast, just like I'm criticized for having um, my friend Scott teams on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who wrote the last Halloween film, right? right. Cause how dare a Christian be involved in horror film? How sure. dare he, right. how dare he want to do that? And so I get criticized, you know, we, you know, there's criticism on this side and yeah. there's criticism on this side. And it's, and, and, you know, I loved your initial response to my question, which was, Hey, um, let's be in the middle and try to bring these two groups together. And, and in a sense, I think that's what your films do. American underdog. Um, I still believe I can, I, I can only imagine. I, I want to end our conversation with this. Um, you guys have decided to step into this space. You talked about how right. your mentors and the people. And so you and your brother have started a new production company with this overall deal with Lionsgate. You're wearing the hat right. there. Kingdom yeah. Story Company. Um, right. tell, us a, tell us a little bit about the vision behind Kingdom Story Company, what, what, what your plans are, um, and kind of where do you see the future kind of the next five to 10 years with your company? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just excited, you know, to, to be in a moment where 
faith from a studio standpoint doesn't have a stigma to it. You know, ultimately a studio is a business and they're, they really want things that connect with an audience. And if you can prove that you bring an audience, then they'll give you every opportunity to be heard. And I think a lot of Christians, we've done a lot of complaining, like there's some conspiracy against this when it's really just about not proving that we have an audience. And, and so with, uh, you know, we've always appreciated behind the scenes of other filmmakers that we've always kind of been an alliance, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, behind the scenes, we've really helped each other, whether it's Devon Franklin or the Kendricks or others, you know, this kind of competitive allies type thing where we share information. I remember with Devon, when Imagine was, was passing what he had done with Miracles from Heaven and we were headed towards heaven is for real. I, te- I texted Devon and I said, today we get to, you know, soar with eagles, man. It's good to be in rare air with you. And, uh, and he said, he said, man, I'm cheering for you today, but you better believe on my next film. I'm, I'm coming back for the title. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and we share all the information behind the scenes to set each other up to win. I want Devon to win. I want the Kendricks to win. I want there to be other filmmakers uh, that are younger with diverse voices to win. And so, you know, after Imagine happened, the opportunity came about that Lionsgate wanted to do a long-term deal with us. And so, you know, they saw a lot of similarities by our DNA with what they had gone through with Tyler Perry. And because they discovered Tyler Perry when he was doing church plays. And then all of a sudden he became the brand that he is. And uh, Tyler's a good friend. And, uh, you know, and so we stepped into that and said, okay, well, let's find out who Tyler's attorney is. And there's this guy named Matt Johnson. And I, I didn't know if that was good or bad. He was uh, some sort of power attorney. We met with him. He liked our business plan. And for this idea of doing an imprint at a studio, similar to what Pixar did at Disney years ago, that was an imprint served for a specific kind of story within the studio that was autonomous. And so it allowed us to have creative control, you know, Lionsgate funds everything, but it allows us to be you know, autonomous in the stories that we tell. And then the ability not just to do Irwin films, but to go out and target young up and coming and seasoned filmmakers that have that faith perspective and give them a platform. And so we hired Matt Johnson. We went into the meeting with, with Lionsgate and they said, do you guys have a, an attorney? We we're like, yeah, we have Matt Johnson. And they're like, they're like, I don't know if that's good or bad. And he's like, Matt was like, they're like, Matt Johnson, like, like the Matt Johnson. I didn't think he was <laughs> taking any more clients. And they looked over and they're like, oh, crap. And so <laughs> Matt, I didn't realize that Matt's other clients were, you know, LeBron James, Oprah and the Obamas, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, he, he knows his stuff. Um, and, and Matt negotiated a deal uh, that we should have never had. So it gave us final cut where we could have creative control, uh, fully funded everything and allowed us to kind of go out and make the mo- movies that we want to make. So literally everything that we brought Lionsgate to develop and make, uh, they said yes to every single one of them uh, if we prove that there's an audience there. And so, and and they put the money behind it with a movie like Underdog that has four times the budget that we've ever had um, and giving us a Christmas Day release that's never happened for a film about faith, yeah. that they felt like it connected with a mainstream audience without betraying our core audience of faith. And um, that's the hope in the future is to begin to play in deeper waters to continue, we're not going to reject or walk away from the audience that we serve, which is an audience of, of faith that has 
uh, strong Christian roots that really portray stories of redemption, forgiveness, and love that we believe in, but also stories that we feel like can take a swing at that mainstream audience uh, that can do both and. And, uh, you know, the jury's out of whether that'll work, but we've been given every opportunity to succeed. And Kingdom Story Company, we hope, becomes a brand that uh, is a safe destination for families in a world where that's harder and harder to find. Did you, did you, did you, was there ever a time that you thought you were going to release a film opposite the matrix and uh... <laughs> Spider-Man and, and Spider-Man? Steven Spielberg? Yeah, uh, so, yeah. so, so it's you versus Neo yeah. Spider-Man yeah. and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. 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 It was funny. Well, we were, when I was mixing, when I was mixing uh underdog, I was out at a mix at the Sony lot and, uh, I was on the the Novak stage, Kim Novak stage, and I'm mixing with my team, and uh, and and I go out to the waiting area that we share in between the stages, and the stage that we mix on, historic Hollywood stage. It's where they film Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain. Uh, it's stage six at Sony, and I go out, and over to the side, Michael Mann walks by with a bunch of people, and he's mixing his TV show, Jason Reitman. Uh, uh, walks in to do a screening of Ghostbusters and then Denzel Washington is hanging out packing his bag next to me because he's mixing letters for Jordan or uh, uh, letters from Jordan and I I, I I text my brother I'm like who's the imposter here <laughs> and he's like he's like well it's the film industry y'all four are and I'm like That's <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, you know the idea of releasing a movie along with the, some incredibly great filmmakers um uh you know there's no guarantees that it will be successful i think it has every opportunity to have a chance and to be given a chance as a christian without it being an asterisk next to your name uh and just being like i'm a christian it's who i am i tell stories about faith but i also want to do a really great sports movie i want to do a really great love story uh, i want to work with great actors regardless of what they believe uh, in order to portray the thing that I think is universally needed. And that's, uh, that's a, knowing that there's a God that desperately loves them to be given that opportunity. That's all you can ask for to get a chance to play in the Super Bowl, You know, you know, that's, that's huge. And so I'll take it, man. And, uh, we're excited to see what God does. Uh, it's no coincidence. I think that you're, your American underdog story is <laughs> is premiering uh, December twenty fifth against West Side Story and all those other ones. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking with you uh, today. I'm so honored just that you would uh, take some time. I know I know you've been busy with uh, the typical circuit of of doing all the press junkets and everything, and uh, we're just excited for you. We're excited to see the film and. Um, uh, the film, once again, is called American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story. Um, it comes out uh, all over the country Christmas Day. It's going to be it's exclusively in theaters, right? This is one of the. Yep. yep we're doing yeah. we're, all, we're going all theaters on this one. So all we want people to to go out there and, and, and check it out. Christmas is Christmas still, by the way, is Christmas still the number one? I mean, I know COVID's messed everything up, but is Christmas still the number one movie going day in the country? Yeah, it? It, that that's the exciting thing. It's like that's. That 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 is our Super Bowl, followed closely behind by July Fourth. But uh, you know, people they typically they open their presents, they see their family, and then they go to the movies. And you know, for a movie, you know, a lot of the other movies that are choices out there kind of divide that they serve a certain segment of audience. We felt like American Underdog 
is a really great compromise film to say that something the whole family can enjoy. So fingers crossed, man. I don't know. Did you, uh, one, one last question. Have you, have you, have you caught a pass from Kurt Warner yet? <laughs> it was all that I could do to keep Kurt Warner from being his own stunt, stunt double. Yes, I, I have caught a pass and he was, he was passing me the ball saying, see, I can still throw it. Put me in coach. And I was like, Kurt, the insurance money that I would have to cover for the NFL network uh, is not going to allow that. So he got one little cameo of his hand signing a contract in the film, but he wanted a lot more. That's great. That's great. Well, it's this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I like to end all of our podcasts by praying for our guests. Would you allow me to, to pray for you? We'd love that. We'd love that. Heavenly Father, just uh, we just want to pause and thank you. Thank you for just the chance to be able to talk to um, Andrew and just uh, learn about his story, learn about him and his brother and all the work that they're doing. And um, God, we're just, um, we know that um, this, this business is a difficult business. It's a hard business. And um, every, every film is a new journey. And uh, God, we know that this one is coming towards its end. And uh, we just uh, pray for your blessing. We pray that the film is uh, seen by everyone who who needs to see it, who wants to see it. Uh, we pray God for success for the film that that people would enjoy it. Um, that Andy and uh, John would would uh, have a real sense of satisfaction of being able to see um, how the audience responds to their hard work. And um, God, we just pray for a blessing for all of that. We pray for a blessing for uh, his family, for himself, uh, uh, everything he's got going on with uh, their production company and. Uh, all their future projects, all their future endeavors. God, we just pray that you would go before them. You'd watch watch over them. Um, I'm sure that they are on the um, the list of those who want to do harm as well, um, That to see them brought down uh, now because of uh, their success. So God, I pray you would protect them. I pray you'd watch over them, watch over their family, watch over their relationships. God, um, and we pray that... Um, uh, as they continue to craft and create new ideas and new stories, that your hand would be all over um, everything that they do and that it would be pleasing and honoring to you. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com. Mm-hmm.